You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Well, hey, welcome to church. Uh, my name's Will. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to bring the word and preach to you this Easter Sunday as we celebrate. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, as you heard read um, just now from my friend Chris Priestley. As a church, we're also going to be praying for his church in Morgantown, Crossroads Church, this week. And, um, and so uh, just bear that in mind and be looking on our social media as we pray for them this week. Um, uh, as we look at 2 Peter, we see Peter writing a second letter in the Bible um, to the Gentiles. Um, specifically, he's writing to a group of people who are believers who have been dispersed throughout the nations. Um, this is his second letter, um, and he's probably written this letter um, due to the growing influence of false teachers. Um, a few things you need to know about New Heights, um, especially if you're new today. We stick to the Bible, which means that we don't do a lot of like topical type of preaching. We do what's called expository preaching, which means we just go through books of the Bible verse by verse. This keeps me from getting on a soapbox as a pastor, and it keeps you all in the Word of God and lets the Holy Spirit be our guide as a church. Um, also, <clears throat> we preach grace because the Bible does on all of its pages. Um, and so I want you to see in today's sermon that it is a sermon and it is a gospel of grace. Um, we believe in the doctrines and the teachings of grace, and I hope that you see and, and actually not just see and hear, but actually experience grace today. Um, and, and thirdly, we believe in the gospel over everything, um, that, that we center ourselves on the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing to us, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection that we commemorate on Easter is the most important thing in our lives. Okay, So in verse 1 um, of this book, as we begin it today, um, Peter says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now what, you, what I need you to see in that verse is that Peter very clearly ascribes to Jesus deity, meaning Jesus is God. Um, meaning that if you do not acknowledge that Jesus is God, then you're not uh, acknowledging and believing in a Jesus of the Bible. Um, Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus rose from the dead proving that he is God. And then in the epistles, we have these proclamations, many of these sorts of proclamations showing that Jesus is deity. And Peter introduces himself. He's writing about A.D. 68. And he introduces himself in a Hebrew and a Greek introduction. Simeon being a Hebrew name that he had, and then Peter being a Greek name that was given to him by Jesus as he was traveling when Jesus uh, was ministering. Now, this Gentile emphasis that he says, um, Gentile just means that you're not Jewish. And so here's a Jewish man writing to Gentile Christians, and he says that you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, he's um, contrasting that with Jews. A lot of the false teachers of Peter's day were teaching that, um, that uh, anyone who would convert to Christianity had to also convert to Judaism, had to become Jewish in all of their rituals and all their religion and all their practices. And Peter is uh, denying that. He's saying, hey, you have already obtained an equal standing with us. God doesn't look at you any differently. Um, and what this shows us as Christians today, especially as most of us are probably not Jewish in ethnicity, um, it shows us that regardless of our ethnicity, our class, our culture, or our past, that that makes no difference in the message that we proclaim as Christians. Amen? That Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead and he has invited all to come and receive this grace. And Peter finishes his introduction by saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And the knowledge that he uh, begins, you're going to see is, <clears throat> I pray that you continue even with our church as we go through this letter together, 
over the next several weeks, um, what you're going to see is knowledge is a key theme from Peter. Um, he uses the Greek word here, epinosis, which means an intimate and personal knowledge. And if you know Jesus, it's because Jesus has introduced himself to you. I know a lot of us are in a, in a little bit of an uncomfortable social setting today. I know it's crowded in here. I know you've had to talk to people you don't know. The worship leader made you turn around and shake hands with people. And some of you are like, I hate that. That was weird. I get it, okay? But um, at some point, like there's an introduction made and someone's got to make the first move, right? What I want you to see today is that in your introduction to Jesus, it was actually Jesus making the first move. A lot of times we feel like we made the first move to Jesus. Like we found him, we sought him out, and we made the first move to Jesus. But what Peter's going to show us is that Jesus made the first move toward us. Y'all remember the movie Forrest Gump? Every good sermon has to have a Forrest Gump illustration, amen? And, and there's a scene in Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan is in a hotel room with Forrest Gump, and he looks at Gump, and he says, Gump, have you found Jesus yet? You remember what Forrest says? He says, sir, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. <laughs> and and, and the, the thing is, is like, all of us were told about Jesus at some point in our lives. I mean, we live in a very culturally Christian area in Appalachia. Um, all of us have heard about Jesus. We've heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so even though we've been told about Jesus, it feels like we sought him out or found him because someone told us about him. And then we went searching the Bible or the Internet or Sunday school classes or churches for him. But the reality that Peter's going to show us is that God actually worked through those people to reveal himself to you. That Jesus made the first move toward you. And especially if you have not been in a church, you haven't been following Jesus, what I want you to see today is Jesus may be using the circumstances of today to introduce himself to you. And so I want to show you three things from the text uh, that we looked at. Um, I want to show you that God saves, firstly, um, that he is sovereign, that he alone is responsible for our salvation. Um, secondly, I want you to see that in response to that, and it's important the order, in response to that, we serve throughout our entire lives. And then thirdly, I'm just going to call you to make sure, um, just to look at your life and kind of make sure. Now, those of you that come to New Heights all the time have heard me talk about my culinary genius. All right? um, if you're new here, I'm going to enlighten you. Because um, you don't just get Bible at New Heights. That's mostly what you get. But sometimes you get really practical life advice. And, um, and so this is just for free, but when I, I'm, a, I'm not a great cook, but um, I, have, I have adapted this uh, pragmatism and style of whenever I cook something, I just add the word dad's famous in front of it. And it makes, it makes everyone think it's better, even if it's not. Dad's famous nachos is a very common dish we have at our home. We have dad's famous spaghetti. We have dad's famous ramen noodles. Uh, we have dad's famous lots of things. You fill in the blank, okay? Um, but ramen noodles are like, there is a, have y'all noticed this trend among youth, like young people, maybe you can resonate with this. Like there is an increasing love of ramen noodles in our culture. Have y'all seen this? I'm sitting, I'm sitting at the park the other day and this teenager walks by and he's wearing this hoodie and it's literally like every part of the hoodie is a ramen noodle package. Like it's just like, he's covered in ramen noodle branding. I'm like, this is insane to me. But I ain't mad at it, so I might need to get one of those, all right? But, but ramen noodles, when you get ramen noodles, you get, uh, what, do you, what do you get? You get noodles, you know, you know like the little hardened uh, packet, and you get a flavor packet, right? Uh, matter of fact, Dad's famous ramen noodles, sometimes he forgets to put the, the flavor packet in. <laughs> and we just say, that's how it's made. That's Dad's famous version. Um, <clears throat> but it lacks a couple of things. Namely, it lacks water, right? And it also lacks heat. 
So you've got to add the ingredients of heat and water. And, and sometimes the, the church and, and Christians, I think even in well-intentioned churches, they, they present the gospel like that. That Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and we believe these things to be true, but, but what's, there's just like really simple ingredients that are lacking for you to be saved. And, and you can fill in the blank with whatever. You guys have probably all heard that. You've got to say the sinner's prayer. You've got to go to church every week. You have to not cuss. You have to look nice. You have to you know, have all your ducks in a row. Um, so we, we kind of have this ramen noodle teaching of salvation. Just add water. Just add heat. Just add the sinner's prayer. Just add baptism. Or just add Easter attendance. But I want you to see that Jesus alone saves we don't believe in a ramen noodle faith, that, that Jesus has done most of it and we just got to add a couple of ingredients. No, we believe that Jesus saves people sovereignly on his own, that Jesus introduces himself to people and when our eyes are opened sovereignly by God to see who he truly is, then there's no other option for us than to run into his arms and to commit our whole life to him. And, and what we do, all of those things that are, that are good that I just mentioned, but not salvific, like church attendance and baptism and communion and Sunday school, all those things are good, but they're all responses to Jesus opening our eyes and Jesus introducing himself to us. Alistair Begg, a pastor um, in Cleveland, is actually quoted by our, one of our pastors on Friday night at our Good Friday service, but he says it this way, that if anyone begins to explain their salvation in, in the first person, they're wrong. Because I was baptized, or because I go to church, I'm going to heaven, or because I prayed a sinner's prayer, I'm going to heaven, or because I walked an aisle. He says the answer of salvation must always be in the third person. Because he died for my sins, because he rose from the dead, because he called me out of darkness into his marvelous light, because he has imputed his righteousness to me, and the only I statement that comes into that is because I am a jacked up sinner, unworthy, but God has been gracious to me. Peter continues, he says, his divine power, not I, not things that I've done, but he says his, Jesus's, remember he mentions Jesus in his introduction, Jesus's divine power has granted to us, the word grant is important here, it, it means to, to give a gift, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, we're called by God. The Bible says that we're chosen before the foundations of the world and saved securely when Jesus died and rose from the dead. You see, Christianity isn't an Easter thing. Peter says that he has granted to us all things that pertain to what? Sundays? No. Is it pertain to life? That's a pretty broad category, isn't it? All these things that God has granted you um, which he's going to go into detail about, has, it pertains to life and godliness, encompassing all of who we are. He continues in verse 4, he says, by which he has granted us uh, to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, something happened when God created. He didn't create us as robots. He created us with a will, with a, uh, with a working framework in the Imago Dei, which means the image of God. He created us to be able to decide things. And so you do have a choice. You do have a will. And you've all used it to run away from God, not to him. You've all used it to go completely in the opposite direction of God's will for your life. 
And we see this happened in the first people, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, when they disobey God, they made a choice that is then founded in our flesh that continued from generation to generation that we walk away from God rather than toward Him. And everything after Genesis 3 in the Bible is a redemptive narrative. It's a redemption story of God bringing His people back into relationship with Him. In verses 3 and 4, both verses, Peter uses the Greek word doreomai, which, which the root word of that is gift. It's the word translated grant or granted in English. You see, the gospel is granted to you. It is gifted to you by grace. You haven't worked your way back to Jesus. He's worked his way back to you. You see, the gospel is all of grace, which means that God alone saves. And so your question might be, so how do we know who's saved? How do we know who's going to heaven and who's not? Well, the ones who live a life devoted to Jesus are. Are they going to heaven because they live a life devoted to Jesus? No. They live a life devoted to Jesus because they're going to heaven. Do you see the difference there? Because my, uh, my eternal destiny has been secured in Jesus, there's no other option for my life than to devote myself to him. But you see, there is a very real human responsibility. To repent and serve and worship and do all that Jesus commands is exactly that, a command. It's not a request. It's not hippie Jesus on a bar stool in heaven begging you to go to church every Sunday. No, it's a command because he is the rightful king and he says, I've died and risen from the grave and I command that you worship me. And so we do have a, a real responsibility. So both these things are true. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon, whom you may have heard of, was asked one time to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon answered, I do not seek to reconcile friends. Um, I love that response because both of these things are true in Scripture. And so let's look at the second point, is that not only does God save, but then as a response, we serve. You see, Christian service and devotion are responses to salvation. They're not acts that earn our salvation. We serve God in worship and holy living, and we serve others in love and compassion. Uh, verse 5 says, For this very reason you make every effort to supplement your faith. And the things that are listed after that are not the faith. They're not your gospel. They're not what you're saved by. Rather, they're supplements. So this, this word supplement is very important for us to understand what Peter is saying. Um, because he goes into a list of these supplements. Um, if you guys work out like I obviously do, um, you know that there are supplements um, that you can uh, take and and consume before your workout that add to your workout. So what, what the word supplement means is just addition. And so uh, Peter's going to list additions to salvation. So the things that he's getting ready to list are not your salvation. It's not how you're saved. Rather, they're additions to your salvation. So once you're saved, then you do these things. I could explain it this way. Uh, the word supplement in Greek actually means to invest in. Um, my son Micah has a, a, well, all my kids have a college fund, not just one of my kids. That'd be bad. But <laughs> Micah, Micah in particular um, is who the topic of this story is. And um, he, he decides, you know, he wants some control over his college fund. And I've got it invested in some stocks. And I'm on the E-Trade app. And he was asking about his stocks. And he's like, do I own any Tesla stock? And I'm like, no, you don't. And he's like, oh, I love Elon Musk. And I'm like, that sounds like cologne. I don't know what you're talking about. And he's obsessed with Tesla. All right. He's like, I got to, can, dad, can, can, can you buy me some Tesla stock? And I'm looking at his balance in the account. You know, we're not that wealthy. And I'm like, I don't know that I can, son. It's pretty expensive. But I, we had enough to buy one share of Tesla stock. So a couple months ago, we buy a share of 
Tesla stock. He's, he's had a 50% return on income already. So I, I, mean, I need to start listening to Micah's investing advice. But now Micah would probably argue to you that, that he is greatly influencing Tesla by his YouTube searches and whatnot. But the reality is there are lots of people that own Tesla stock, right? And that Elon Musk has no idea who Micah Basham is. Um, and so Micah does not contribute to Tesla in any way. He doesn't add to their strategy or the direction of their company, but his investment does benefit him. And what I want you to see is in the gospel and in your salvation, you do not create, enable, or add to the gospel. You do not, you do not contribute to your faith. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We see this in Ephesians 2. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. When it says it, that's not a reference to grace in that verse. It's a reference to faith in that verse. The faith that you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, something supernatural, the faith that you have has been given to you. It's a gift from God. But just as Micah's investments, his one share benefits him, your investment, your supplement into the fact that you've been saved has very real benefits for you. And if you have not done that, if you've not supplemented your faith, I think Peter's going to make the case that you might not actually have saving faith. And he goes into this uh, list of attributes. In verse 5, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now that feels very repetitive to read, and there's a very important reason why it feels so repetitive. Because notice that after every tribute, a tribute Peter lists it again. He says every attribute twice, except for the first and the last. And the reason he connects them with the word with is because it's not actually a list, it's a chain. He's giving us a description of a cause and effect chain reaction that begins, that's initiated, if you will, by Jesus' saving faith that has been granted to us. And then once that happens, and when that truly happens, the Spirit who lives in us, who's greater than the world, uh, he that's in the world, makes sure that then we add to that virtue, which is a morality and a good reputation. And then once we seek out that morality, that good and bad, and we seek to know what that is, sometimes we have questions about that, right? And so that naturally leads to the next one, which is knowledge, a hunger that, that kind of yearns within us to learn more about the God that we love, to learn more of the scriptures and learn more of the Bible. And this is what draws us into the church so we can learn who God is and what he wants from us. And then what we do is we, we receive knowledge and we begin to see, oh, crap, a lot of the stuff I do in my life is kind of bad for me and not honoring to God. And so what comes from that next in the chain is self-control. We begin to mortify the sinful deeds that are in us. We begin to live a life that looks more like Jesus and less like us. And then what happens to that? We get tired of doing that, right? We slip back into our sinful ways. We've all been there. We've all done that. And so what adds on to that as we continue in faith is steadfastness, which means a faithfulness to remain in what God has called us into. And then godliness, which is holiness, a devotion to him. We begin to read our Bibles and we begin to pray and we begin to go to church even when it's not Easter. And we begin to go to church even when it's like not a normal time and people think we're overcommitted to it. And then the last two really show that the, the cup begins to overflow. It begins to kind of bubble over out of us and it goes into brotherly affection, which means others in the church. We begin to love people in the church who maybe kind of got on our nerves before, right? There's Jesus freaks like, we start to love them. 
and understand them. And then the last one is love. It shows that we, we begin to have a compassion for everyone, even people that hate us. We begin to have a compassion and an empathy and a love for them. Friends, listen to me. This chain of attributes cannot be from you. You are way too selfish and sinful for these things to come about on their own. And so when I look at these things, I see these things in my life. I'm just shoot straight with you. I see these attributes in my life. And this is not me puffing my chest out and saying I'm better than everybody else. But when I see these attributes, I say, there ain't no way they came from my heart. Those had to come from the heart of Jesus. There's no way I love people the way that God's called me to love them. There's no way on my own that I continue in the self-control and steadfastness that I see in the fruit of my life. But Jesus is greater than my flesh. And he's changed my affections and my desires and he's made them look more like his. And here's what Peter says in verse eight. If these qualities, the word if is very important. I want you all to begin to examine your own hearts. If these qualities are yours, and that could be a big if for some of you, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so not only do you have them, but they're increasing in your life, then they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I realize we all tend to be optimistic and begin to believe that we're closer to God than maybe we actually are. I'm not foolish enough to not realize that we live in Appalachia where everyone says they're a Christian. I've talked to some of the most wretched people, just straight up, like people in jail, people, people like that are, that are on the heels of like, I've talked to people who are in the back of a cop cruiser for doing horrible stuff like minutes before, and they make themselves sound like a better Christian than any other Christian I've ever known, right? And, and the reason for that, and I'm not just getting down on people, the reason for that is we all tend to look at ourselves with a very optimistic view. But when we read the Bible, here's the troubling thing. The Bible doesn't give a very optimistic view of you. And so when we come together as a church and we open up the Bible as a church, we're not opening it up to make you feel better about yourself. We're opening it up to make much of Jesus, to lift him high and to praise him for saving out of the depths of sin that we were in. You're here today because a man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Whether you fully believe that or not, that's the reason you're here. I know there might be some superficial stuff, like I came with a friend or I came with family or whatever, but like at, at the core of why there's such a big crowd today, you're here because 2,000 years ago a man rose from the dead, and you have to wrestle with that. You've got to do something with the fact that billions of people believe that's true. And if that's true, here's my question to you. How could you not let that alter your entire life? How could you not base your entire life around that? Are you a Christian? You better make sure. And the third point is that, make sure. So we see Jesus working in our hearts. And Peter says, if he has saved us, if he's worked in our hearts and given us faith, then necessarily these attributes will follow. There will be fruit. Jesus said, by your fruits, you will know them. So Peter says in verse 8, whoever exhibits these qualities... They guard against unfruitfulness. But what about the people who profess to be Christians, but they don't exhibit these qualities? They're unbothered by their sin. They do things that are clearly wrong, that the Bible tells us are wrong, and they just do it and it doesn't really seem to bother them. Or 
They're not part of the church, which the Bible clearly calls us to be a part of, or they're not loving, or they're not kind, or they're not gracious. What happens about that? The people who claim to be Christians but don't exhibit these qualities. Well, I'm glad you asked because Peter actually addresses that question in verse 9. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's description of those people is that they're so nearsighted that they're blind. He's not talking physically, he's talking spiritually. Um, like, I, I am nearsighted, which means I can read just fine without my glasses. Matter of fact, sometimes I like to lay down and read, so I'll, I'll you know, read from my phone or whatever without these just fine, but uh, the back half of the room, y'all have disappeared when I take these off. <laughs> y'all are just gone. So I'm nearsighted, which means I can see up close just fine, but without these corrective lenses, I can't see far away. That's probably not safe for me to drive, or um, I can't read road signs. There's a cheat sheet screen in the back of the room for me to see my sermon points in Scripture. I can't see that anymore. And so, like, I need these things, right? And, and the reality is what Peter is describing is that the people who do not exhibit these qualities, they're so nearsighted. What it means is they're only focused on themselves. They don't need to see far off. They don't need to see other people. They don't need to see the whole world. They don't need to see history. They don't need to see what God's future plans are. All they need to worry about is themselves. That's the point that Peter is making. And if you don't exhibit these qualities, Peter doesn't just say that you're selfish and only worried about yourself, which I think is what he's saying, but he also says you're blind, which blindness in Scripture is always used to describe spiritual lostness. People that are not in Christ. Now, Peter carefully doesn't go on to say they're definitely not Christians. He even mentions that they may have been cleansed from their former sins. I think the point here is that Peter doesn't have to judge whether or not someone is actually a Christian. And I don't either. And you don't either. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible is, is always quoted in King James. Judge not lest you too be judged. Right? Well, Jesus, when he says that, isn't talking about actions because the Bible clearly, and Jesus himself calls us clearly to judge actions all the time. What Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not lest you too be judged, is he's saying, don't judge people's hearts. You don't know who I've brought to life and who I haven't. So I can't judge your heart, but the Lord can. And so what I want to call you to, whether you've been a part of the church for a long time or this is the first time today, wherever you may find yourself on that spectrum, I want to call everyone here today to, to look at their heart and ask the Lord to be the judge. Jesus, will you judge our hearts today? You see, Peter's referencing some things that I think are very important for us to consider. And he even says it in verse 10. He calls us to consider them. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, again, Peter's not saying if you do all the right things, you'll make it to heaven. He's saying if God has given you heaven, then you will begin to do the right things. You see, Peter's story, I don't know if you remember much about Peter, but his own testimony, his own story gives us a beautiful picture of a beautiful mess of what being a disciple of Jesus actually looks like. Peter was always kind of brought in close to Jesus throughout his ministry. He's part of what was called the inner circle. He kind of saw up close and personal a lot of the things that even the other disciples, the other 12, didn't get to see. Peter, though, 
maybe made more mistakes than Judas in the ministry. Judas kind of followed all the rules, did everything right. Peter's like chopping people's ears off and whatnot, falling in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has to save him. Like he, He's just messing up all the time. And in Matthew 26, Jesus gathers his disciples together before he dies. And he says this to them. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Listen to what Peter says in his arrogance. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I won't do that, Jesus. I won't mess up. I'm loyal. I'll cut people's ears off for you. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In another gospel, in the same passage, Luke records it this way. Jesus looks at Peter at this moment. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that's a reference to Peter stumbling and falling and his devotion. But he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And 2,000 years later, we are reading a letter that Peter wrote to strengthen us so that we wouldn't fall like he did. You see, Peter did deny Jesus that night. And Jesus, after he rose from the dead, first Easter, if you will, gets with Peter and he looks him in the eye and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And he goes, go feed my sheep. And he asks him two more times and Peter answers in the same way two more times. And he asks him three times because Peter had denied him three times. And he did something very important after that in, in Peter's life. He indwelt him with the Holy Spirit. And Peter still had some mistakes even after that. We read about it in the book of Acts and some things he did wrong and uh, some, some controversy that he stirred up. But what we see is that from that point on, even to Peter's own death, he's put to death for his belief. He doesn't waver like that anymore. He exhibits the qualities that he lists in 2 Peter chapter 1. And not only does he do that, but he also calls us to that same type of strength that doesn't come from us, but comes from God's Spirit. You see, Peter didn't have all the skills. He wasn't the best for the team. He didn't have it all together. But even through this mess, here's the redeeming quality of Peter. He was chosen by Jesus. He was chosen. And Jesus didn't pick him because of because of his great accolades or his resume or how good of a fisherman he was or anything like that. Peter chose him, or Jesus chose Peter because of his sovereign, wonderful, merciful grace. You see, the word election in 2 Peter 1.10 means chosen. Some parts of the Bible call it predestination. And if this leads you to sort of a panic, praise God for that. Because you might be wondering, how do I know if I've been predestined or chosen by God? How do I know if he's chosen me to be in the church, to be in his family? Let me put it to you this way. People who are not elect, who are not chosen, who are not called by God, typically don't sit around wondering why God hasn't chosen them. Typically, they sit around shaking their fist at God or going about worried about themselves. Remember, they're nearsighted. They're only worried about themselves, not about the Lord. But if you feel that in your soul, if you're wondering, am I a part of God's family? Is he calling me to himself? Let me tell you that Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead to save you. And he loves you. And he's using this jacked up sinner to proclaim the gospel to you so that you would turn your life 
and repent and trust fully in him and begin to exhibit these qualities of Christian living. Friend, you're chosen and loved by God and he's commanding you to repent today. And the concluding verse in verse 11 says this, for in this way, what way? The confirming of our calling and election, making sure that God has indeed called us to this family, that Jesus has indeed died on a cross and rose from the dead, that through that, we will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to receive Jesus today. If you've never uh, repented and trusted in him, I want to call you to that. And I want to lead us in a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come up front or do anything because I believe Jesus saves, not anything that you do. But if you make a commitment, if Jesus is just working on your soul today and you make a commitment to follow him, I want to invite you to come and talk to me after service. We're going to have several people out at that tent also that would be happy to pray with you, to talk to you about baptism. We're going to have baptisms next month at our church. I would love nothing more for than you to make today the day that you say, I'm going to commit to being a Christian. I'm going to commit. Maybe you've even like in your head believed that Jesus rose from the dead and that's why you're here. But you're going to make it today that you're in your heart going to follow it. You're going to base your whole life on it. Everything's going to be changed because of it. If that's you, I just want to invite you to pray along with us today. And those of you who have been a Christian for a long time, I just want to invite you to, again today to pray. There are thousands upon thousands of churches that are gathering today and people that are coming to Christ today that are seeing the gospel clearly for the first time today. Can we just collectively join together and pray and thank Jesus for being alive? raising from the dead and drawing people to himself like he promised he would and look forward to the day when he returns and he brings us all home where death will be no more, where there'll be no more pain and we can praise him forever. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.